Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, I'm Sam. And did I mention I'm the preeminent Proust scholar in the U.S.? Hi, I'm Lizzie. And you're a homo, but you might be able to appreciate this. <laughs> you're a homo. You might be able to appreciate this. This <laughs> the, is me talking laugh. to Lizzie about football. <laughs> The laugh I laughed. The scrammed, you scrammed. <laughs> and this is Subtextual, where we take movies, look at them with a queer lens, and find all the little gayness that's got inside. And we've got a really super great film today, huh? We have a great film, Little Miss Sunshine. It was selected by our top tier patrons. If you want to tell us what to do, you can do that at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. There's plenty of different tiers, so you can get in wherever makes sense for you. Lots of different perks. And like I said, top tier picked Little Miss Sunshine. Couldn't be happier. This is one of, I don't know, probably one of the most delightful films I've ever seen. Delightful is the perfect word for it. I'm just really glad to be talking about this film today. So I want to know, have you... Like, what's your guys' history with the film? I, dude, I'm embarrassed to say watching this film for the podcast like two nights ago was the first time I'd ever seen it. Yeah. I just had an aversion to it because I all I knew about it was indie film starring mm-hmm. Abigail Breslin wearing glasses. I didn't even know anything about the other cast members. Literally, Steve Carell, no. Paul Dano, no. And so I kind of assumed it was about like a sick kid all this time. And I was like, oh, it's going to be sad and serious and just avoided it. Dude, I was so wrong. And and this isn't a film where it's like, oh, you missed it. Like, it's not going to age well or mm-hmm. like it doesn't hit anymore. Like, it hit me so hard. I, eyes, you know, like when you look at cartoon characters in films and they just love something, they have like that little sparkle <laughs> asterisk. Yeah. Like, that was me watching this movie. I really enjoyed the shit out of it. And I laughed. I laughed hard. And I cried a little. I cry a bunch when I watch this movie. <laughs> I'm so glad you liked it. I was, it was one of those things that I'm like, is this something you miss? And then you miss. And then, you know, right. I was watching you watch it for the first time. And I was like, I don't know if it's going to hit her. I wasn't sure. No, it's so unbelievably funny and well-made. It's just like, I think my letterbox review was, man, I love movies because this is what movies are about. Like just really well-structured, very heartfelt, well done without being too in your face. Like, I I venture you to name a better ensemble cast. It's a great ensemble. Lee had just informed us that next year's Academy Awards will include a category for best casting. Mm -hmm. If that existed in 2006, I think this cast would have definitely been up in the running. But speaking of Lee, producer Lee, what's your relationship with this film? I remember really, really liking it. And let me quickly, what what year did it come out? 2006. 2006. So... I feel like the last time I saw it was when I was in high school and probably a few years after it came out. So I may have seen it when it came out and then watched it again. Uh, I was pretty blown away by it. It's been a while since I've revisited it, so I'm excited to hear you guys talk about it. But um, yeah, it just reminds me when I think of the movie Little Miss Sunshine, it reminds me of like, I feel like it was around that time and maybe after the success of that movie that there were just a lot of movies like that, indie, kind of heartfelt, that came afterward. Some of them not so great, but regardless, I am very much uh, a fan of that sort of genre of films. Oh, wow. Okay. So we have, I'm very excited to talk to you guys about it today because this is, do I say it too much? 
I'm not going to say rich text. It's a rich text. Uh, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> can we have a rich text buzzer? Yeah, we really can. Actually, there's one behind you. <laughs> well, we're talking about it today because the main character, arguably the main character, there's a lot of protagonists in this film. Uh, Frank, who's played by Steve Carell, is a gay man. And I think his arc in this film is really beautiful. As I said, you can argue a lot of people are the protagonists. So this has been on the back burner for a second. Uh, so when it was chosen by our top tier patrons, I was delighted to be able to finally talk about it. The production is really interesting. As Lee was saying, this is kind of like right in the beginning of of like a ripple effect of plenty of indie films that were made for what looks like $10 right. that were like really heartfelt and lovely. This has like a Juno feel, like the same indie coziness. And I'm not sure what year Juno came out, but it had that like similar vibe of like, okay, the people who are making this film or writing this film so lovingly crafted it. Mm-hmm. And it just hits audiences in that like perfect way with a great soundtrack, great cast, great dialogue. Yeah, Juno was years later. I think Juno was in 2011. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh actually. I was going to say like maybe 2008 or 2000? 9. Juno was the next year, 2007. Seven. So it, Juno must have been in production while this was like being released. So it's hard to say if it was like a product of the success of Little Miss Sunshine. But yeah, there was definitely a moment in time where you couldn't escape these kind of cozy indie Bell and Sebastian soundtrack type films. Yeah, hell yeah. But the production's really interesting. It was directed by a, a directing team, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. I saw that in the credits and I was like, you don't see that very often at all, like a, a duo directorship. I wish I would see more of it. I think when I do find out something is done by a team or like, you know, like two people working together, it feels more fleshed out. It feels like a lot more things are taken into consideration, things that would have been, that would have, I guess, likely fallen through the cracks. The Daniels, for example, Swiss Army Man, Coen everything brothers, everywhere. Yeah, Coen Brothers. Safety Brothers. Yeah, the Wachowski sisters. Exactly. I love to see it. And honestly, it doesn't take me out of it. I don't really get off on the idea that I was like, this is one person's idea. An auteur. Yeah, I just want the film to be good. And this film is really good. Wait, you bringing up the Coen Brothers remind me of something really salty you said the other day that I love. Oh, yeah, when the Safety Brothers... <laughs> like announced they were going their separate ways. Someone commented and it's like, finally, we'll see which one has the sauce. And the Coen brothers are coming out with a movie like this week, probably last week by the time this comes out. And one of the like, Coen is. Which Coen? Like, we're going to find out if this Coen has the sauce or if it's this other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But their inception is really interesting. They met at UCLA in the 1970s where Jonathan Dayton was a film major and Valerie Ferris was a dance student. And uh, they are now married, they're romantic partners, but they're also longtime collaborators. So everything they've directed, they've directed together. Are there any other movies they've directed that I would know? Well, before this, they were known professionally as music video directors. Oh, nice. So they directed Straight Up by Paul Abdul. Shut up! Which has been in my head all day thanks to this episode. Oh my God. 1979 by The Smashing Pumpkins, Californication, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, the list goes on and on. R.E.M., Janet Jackson. Wow. They have directed music videos for basically everyone as well as like commercials. They've done stuff for like Apple and Gap, you know. Damn. So this was their first uh, directorial debut, like narrative feature. I love a first feature. I love it. I love a first feature. (laughs) (laughs) Give me more. It's, yeah. And so since then, they've directed Ruby Sparks, the film uh, Battle of the Sexes. Which I think if you like Nyad this year, you would love Battle of the Sexes. Oh, the tennis movie. Mm-hmm. With Emma Stone? Emma Stone plays Billie Jean King, mm-hmm. who plays against uh, Bobby Riggs, who's played by Steve Carell. I love that oh, film. Cool. I think it should be on the pod. Maybe it'll happen in 
someday. Um, and tennis most, is gay. Tennis is gay. Sorry. Uh, and most recently, they've directed the TV series Fleshman. Fleischman is in Trouble. Yeah, it's uh, very close to the main character of Northern Exposure, Dr. Joel Fleischman. Really? I, I watched the series. It's a good series. Wait, what? It's named after him? It's a different spelling, but I can only assume that it was named after him. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting connections between all of these yeah. podcasts somehow. It was written by Michael Arndt. This is his first script. He was actually working for Matthew Broderick as his personal assistant. Shut up. Yeah, and he quit to finish the script, which he said he wrote in three days. No! Mm-hmm. The script is too good. Yeah, he. I mean, he workshopped it after and, like, you know, had to revise and rewrite some things for, you know, the production companies. But, yeah, he got the idea out in three days. It's based off of, like, his true life events of road tripping with his family, <laughs> 600 miles with a VW a bus with a broken clutch. Thank you for finding that out for me because while I'm watching this fucking movie, I'm like, okay, road trip movies love, family dramas love, putting them all in a fucking video BW bus that has to be run down the <laughs> interstate to start is just the perfect visual thing that this family needs to like test them to bring them together and it's Mm -hmm. such a fun motif it's such a fun plot device i love that it's based on reality yeah i I don't even want to say it moves the story forward because it quite technically like (laughs) stops them from the story yeah (laughs) but i think it's such a genius um i like i don't want to say plot device but i think it really does force the family to work together when they otherwise wouldn't i think that's really beautiful but um Michael Arden, who wrote the script, initially wanted to direct it himself with the camcorder because he didn't assume anyone in Hollywood would care about the script at all. Oh, my God. And it was read by a talent agency who then passed it on to Dayton and Ferris, the directors. And Dayton and Ferris, like I said, this is their first narrative feature. And people had been throwing them scripts, like asking them to direct narrative features, and they just kept saying no. And then they got the script and were like, yeah, we're doing this one. Yes. Oh, I love that so, so much. Yeah, they were immediately attracted to the project. And something interesting is that when the film was under focus features for like a very short period of time in production, they actually fired Arndt, the screenwriter, because he refused to rewrite the script to center Richard's character, the father. Focus features wanted him to be the protagonist of the film. and, And Michael Arndt was like, no. He's not. Well, what's great about this movie, you're like, I guess Steve Carell's character is the protagonist, but everyone is given equal importance and everyone has an arc, Mm -hmm. period. And I'm like begging for an arc for a single character from most movies. And here I am getting like seven of them individually, (laughs) even from a dead guy. Yeah. The dead guy gets an arc Mm -hmm. in this weird way. Genius. And it's so smart not to center the dad because... Number one, he's the least interesting character right off the bat. And I think if I had signed up for a movie about the dad, I would be like, okay, I'm out. Mm-hmm. But like you give everyone their moment and it just makes it much, much more rich how interconnected everyone's dreams are. Genius writing. I can't believe this is the first script idea. And he was right for standing by that. Yeah, no. He And you know, he was fired because he wouldn't center Richard, but then rehired within the month because Focus Features just left the project entirely. Perfect. So he was right back on. And then after the success of this film, he's gone on since to write Toy Story 3, <gasps> Hunger Games Catching Fire, as well as The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, as well as Star Wars The Force Awakens. Oh, So this no. man is paid. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I was just talking about Toy Story 3 the other day and how it's like probably the saddest movie I've ever seen, like the most I've ever cried in a movie. I just love that. 
after what is probably the most realistic script based in total reality of 2006, he went on to do like Star Wars, Hunger yeah. Games, and Toy Story. These cousins want to fuck each other, and this is about a Buzz Lightyear. Oh my god, I what found cousins want to fuck each other? Uh, Raylo, Kylo, Star Wars, Star Wars. <laughs> like, okay, aren't they related? I don't know. I thought you were talking about Hunger Games. I was like, I miss um, that beat. Hello, <laughs> no, no, Hunger Games. No one has time to fuck. They're all fucking starving. Um. Oh, I found this really great photo, Sam. I think I might have to put the photo in the notes. But it, uh, apparently in like the year 2000, they had <laughs> Buzz Lightyear and Woody from Toy Story host the Oscars like for a short period of time. And I literally found a photo <laughs> of us. I sent it to you this morning. I'm going to put it in the show notes. But it's us hosting the Oscars Lizzie's in the like, year 2000. I found my Oscars outfit. I found our Oscars <laughs> outfit. And it was Buzz Lightyear and Woody. And I was like, yeah. It's Woody in a formal cowboy wear. And it's Buzz Lightyear <laughs> with his suit and just like a little bow tie. And I'm like, it's us. I've never seen such a beautiful photo of it's us. A picture of us. Anyway, sorry, Toy Story is not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> Maybe someday we can make a case for Toy Story 3. But Seems gay enough. Buzz Lightyear never touches a woman, as far as I remember. Bo Peep? No, Bo Peep was with Woody. I'm not getting into this. Let's get into okay. the movie. <laughs> okay, okay. There are two kinds of people in this world. Winners and losers. Sarcasm is the refuge of losers. How much do I owe you for those pearls of Oh, that one's on the house. That's your Stop it. Stop it. Stop it up. He started it. A la mode translates as in the fashion. A la mode. Frank, shut up. Everybody push! All right. This is such a great movie. I think the first act is so magnificent. So I'm going to take a little more time in the first act then the second and the third. So I'm not dragging. I just really think it's so masterfully done. They set up all of these characters so incredibly well. We know exactly what they want. They all have insanely high ideals and ambitions that you understand as an audience that they can't reach, but you kind of love them more for not understanding that. And they're so flawed. All of so them. So flawed. Yes. Except for Olive. We start on Olive. Olive's perfect. Played by Abigail Breslin. And she's watching the Miss America contest and she's like mimicking the pageant girls, like she's putting her hands up when they put their hands up and she's trying to be just like them. Um, It's a scholarship program. <laughs> Thank you. Olive would win Miss Congeniality, hands down. Oh, absolutely. She's Rhode Island for sure. <laughs> yes. Then we meet Richard Hoover, who's played by Greg Kinnear, uh, who's giving a motivational speech on the nine steps of success to an almost empty classroom. <laughs> We see Dwayne, who's played by Paul Dano, who is working out in silence. And on his calendar, we can see him counting the days until he can leave his family. Amen. <laughs> We've all been there. And then we see Grandpa, who's played by Alan Arkin, who's snorting heroin in the basement bathroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we see Cheryl, who's played by Tony Collette. I'm surprised we haven't said Tony Collette's name yet. I knew that it was, I was going to say it an exponential amount. So I was holding back. If you guys don't know, you probably know. Tony Collette is like absolutely my favorite actor of all time. She is always my letterbox most watched yeah. actor. I think she's great. And she plays a very understated role in this film and she does a fantastic job. I will say one bone to pick for this film and maybe I'm just missing it, but I'd be hard pressed to find her arc. Like I feel like she's the glue that keeps everyone grounded and that's a very important character in this story. But like Paul Dano's arc is so clear. I found her arc. I can tell you where it is. Okay. It 
at whatever point, because I'm sure there is one, but it, it didn't seem as, maybe it just isn't as physical as everyone's dreams to be. Mm-hmm. But I found that she was always really self-possessed and never really had to change. Maybe it's because I'm a Tony Collette super stan that I was like just blocking out everybody else in this movie but her. You're but like, this is her movie. She's the protagonist. Starring the director Tony Collette. edited by. And nobody else. Score like, composed. Yeah. The rest of these people could have been Muppets if you ask me. <laughs> Um, but we see her smoking a cigarette on the way to pick up her brother, Frank, who's played by Steve Carell, from a mental facility after he's attempted suicide. Interesting enough, this role was written initially for Bill Murray, mm-hmm. and then second in mind was Robin Williams. <gasps> uh, it would have been too much. I would have just sobbed. Well, given that the film was delayed, I mean, it was in production for five years due to budgetary concerns. I don't think that they could secure either of those people. And production was very wary of casting Carell, who at the time was basically an unknown, Mm. which you won't really notice if you saw the film when it come out. Because in between filming this film and the release of this film, 40-Year-Old Virgin was released and the first season of The Office. He had a good couple of years, brah. He had a great year. And they got him at the perfect time. Yeah. And so once this film was released, the production switched around entirely and they were like, how about you be the face of the movie? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Did any of the other actors, like were any of the other actors well established at this time? Like, I feel like this could be an early, early Paul Dano. It's a very early Paul Dano. Abigail Breslin was a pretty established child actor. She was like in Signs. Tony Collette, pretty established. Greg Kinnear had already gotten an Oscar nomination as well as Alan Arkin. Okay. And yeah, other than Steve Carell and Paul Dano, sort of, I mean, everybody else was like pretty high ranking it's funny because i would say paul dano and steve carell are probably two of the bigger actors like by 2024 standards now i mean tony collett probably supersedes all of them lizzie had to say that but, I, had <laughs> I mean she yeah no yeah she's like the number one <laughs> yeah that's right um, but you know what i mean it's like i i didn't really i recognize those other two actors but i couldn't tell you a recent film they were in yeah no this is this cast is insanely stacked and so we see them at their home in albuquerque is this our second film in Albuquerque, including High School Musical? Holy shit, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, because Twilight's Phoenix, so <laughs> we can't close but no cigar. So Cheryl enters and she has to bunk Frank with Dwayne because the doctor, the doctors have said that Frank can't sleep alone at night because of a suicide attempt. And they come together for dinner, which is a bucket of chicken. And the screenwriter, Michael Arndt, had said this is his favorite and most proud line of the entire script where Cheryl says, honey, there's a bucket of chicken in the car. Can you get it? And I'll make a salad. (laughs) You know, it's funny. At that line, I was like, name a more American film. Yes. I'm sorry. It's like, and it's the bag lettuce for me with like the, the carrots. Diet Sprite. The diet Sprite, no ice in the like Burger King cup. Yep. America, <laughs> America. God shed his grace on thee. I was like, I know exactly where I am in time and space. Like you're oh, getting the man. bucket of chicken. She's making a salad. Yeah, because you want it to be healthy because she's like a good mom, but it just shows like the kind of good tired mom she is. <laughs> Yeah, so as Dwayne is calling Frank to dinner, I say calling, he's using his hands because Dwayne is not speaking. And Frank asks Dwayne, like, why aren't you speaking? And Dwayne points to a poster of Frederick Nietzsche. Is that Nietzsche? <laughs> Frank says, you don't speak because of Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> Laughed. Dying. Far out. <laughs> <laughs> Far out. <laughs> so at the table, we learn that Frank and Richard... Do not fuck with each other. Richard is the motivational speaker dad. 
fucking hell. I fucking hated this guy in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, he's really hard to love. And Cheryl explains that Dwayne has taken a vow of silence until he reaches his goal of becoming a test pilot. And at this point, Richard begins to praise Dwayne for his determination, saying that Dwayne is utilizing at least seven of the nine steps of success. So Richard, as annoying as he is, kind of is like the the little paper clip on your Word document telling you what's what. Like he's the one that's most verbally explaining the thesis of this film. Yeah. Because his whole thing is like follow your dream, be your best self, never let never let your insecurities show, always be confident. And like ultimately that is kind of the message that everyone at some point embodies, like be yourself. Follow your dreams. Mm -hmm. But he's the only loser that's, like, saying it out loud in such an annoying way. And, and like, the fact that this character gets redeemed for me by the end just shows that, like, this writer is probably a genius and maybe a witch. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out because I was listening to the director's commentary with the screenwriter, Michael Arndt, and he'd said that the only thing he regrets about the script is that he did not make the father richer a more formidable antagonist. Because it's his entire thought process that these characters like live in the confines of. You win or else you don't try. You're a loser. Yeah. Oh, um, I have to disagree with that though. Like I think he's such a great antagonist because it, it's not like he's being negative in any sense or like trying to get in the way of anyone's dreams. Like his daughter Olive, for example, is the perfect thing to look at as he being an antagonist because he's like a subtle antagonistic force like the perfect example is that um the scene where she's eating she orders ice cream for breakfast yeah we can talk about that scene yeah like to, what is more antagonistic than that well the screenwriter went on to say that like the points that you've made are true but that he seems kind of like a clown like he seems kind of like oh you an can't idiot. take him seriously yeah like he's not as so you when you hear him saying all this mm -hmm. stupid stuff especially at this this dinner table where he's saying, like, Dwayne actually is seven of the nine steps. You see Dwayne right. look at him with a hatred. Like, but everybody mm -hmm. else just, like, rolls their eyes because they're so tired of it. Mm -hmm. And you kind of feel sorry for him in the audience. Like, you don't – you're like, yeah, I don't like him, but I think he's kind of stupid. Yeah. So I guess Olive's the only one at this point that can be influenced by Richard. Yeah. No, absolutely. And – Olive joins with Grandpa and immediately begins to question Frank about the scars on his arm. So I'm going to show you that clip now. No, don't answer the question, Frank. Richard. Don't answer it. Richard. You're not going to answer the question, Frank. I wanted Richard. to kill myself because I was He's very sick. unhappy. He's a sick man. He's a sick in his head. Now. Richard. But I'm sorry. I don't think it's an appropriate conversation for a seven-year-old. Well, she's going to find out anyway. Okay. Go on, Frank. Why were you unhappy? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, mainly, though, I fell in love with someone who didn't love me back. Who? One of my grad students. I was very much in love with him. Him? It was a boy? You fell in love with the boy? Yes, I did. Very much so. That's silly. You're right. It was silly. It was very, very silly. Olive, the important thing to understand here is that Uncle Frank gave up on himself. He made a series of foolish choices. I'm sorry, and he gave up on himself, which is something that winners never do. Oh! Lizzie, would you please describe that scene? So it's a quite tense family dinner over this bucket of chicken, but <laughs> Olive, noticing the bandages on Frank's wrist, asked, asked what happened, and Frank is then kind of 
courage slash discouraged from telling his story by uh, Olive's parents and reveals that like he is gay. He had an ill-fated affair with a grad student, subsequently lost his job, lost his position, lost his house, and therefore was driven to self-harm. It's like, do I want to cry or want to laugh? Yeah, two things about that scene that I found really interesting while listening to the the commentary was one in particular, uh, the screenwriter Michael Arndt was saying, like, I've read so many comedy scripts that always start off in a place of comedy. Like, it's joke, 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 even before you learn who the characters are. So he was like, I very intentionally wanted to start them all as like, individuals wherever they were before I started making jokes so that the audience feels like they're learning that they have permission to laugh. So in this scene in particular, when you watch it for the second time, you're laughing because it's so much more funny than the first time. But I mean, he's recounting how he tried to kill himself, but it's objectively funny. So like you don't know if you can laugh or not. Exactly. Well, you at this point already have seen Frank in the hospital and like kind of recovery, which is a super sad scene where his sister comes to like, you know, check him out of the hospital and like embrace him and There's a few jokes there, but they're more spread out. So in this scene, you're getting to see how the characters make fun of themselves or Mm -hmm. allow themselves to be made fun of by everyone around them. And yeah, you're right. It it invites the audience to engage and to decide, like, okay, it's it's okay to laugh now. Yeah. Like, he's not forever stuck in this pit of hell. Like, life goes on. You eat the chicken. You make the salad. The Mm -hmm. diet sprite gets poured. (laughs) I love the the grandfather blowing his nose right in the middle of this recounting <laughs> this suicide attempt. Um, but also very interestingly, you know, between the directors and the writer, when they were discussing the scene, they were saying, you know, we are aware that this is like an exposition dump. And they were like trying to, you know, maybe steer away from that. But they realized in this conversation that you were learning so much about the dynamics that they each have with each other. You know, when Richard speaks, Cheryl rolls her eyes. When Frank when Frank speaks, Olive is so full of attention and so present. You know, when the grandpa speaks, Cheryl rolls her eyes and Dwayne is rolling. You know, yeah. like you all see how they react to each other and you learn so much about who likes who, who doesn't like who, who hates it here, you know, yeah, you in this almost, conversation. You learn more from what they don't say than what is actually being said, mm-hmm. which is also very just smooth, specific enough exposition that I think it's totally allowable to be like, well, this is my story, mm-hmm. you know, like make it true, make it hyper specific. So it feels more real. Lizzie's always said, make it more specific than less specific. That's what makes it actually relate to audiences more than you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, so after this, Olive begins to tell Frank, you know, she, he's like, yeah, I tried to kill myself. She's like, anyways, the Little Miss Chili Pepper contest. <laughs> Little <laughs> In a way that only a six-year-old can do. <laughs> and so she's telling Frank that she was a runner-up at this other pageant and now she's training for the Little Miss Chili Pepper contest and Frank wishes her good luck and Richard says it's not about luck. Luck is a name that losers give to their own failings. It's about wanting to win. You got to want it better than anyone else. And after this they check the answering machine and they have a message from Cheryl's sister informing them that the winner of Olive's past pageant was disqualified. Something about diet pills. <laughs> <laughs> and Olive is now qualified to compete in the Little Miss sunshine pageant in redondo beach this weekend jesus what okay rich text alarm going (laughs) off ding 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 the scream that abigail breslin scrumped at yeah as olive it it shook my whole body my whole core it was 
It's the perfect scream. Look, we'll, we'll play it now. Well, the girl who won had to forfeit her crown. I don't know why something about diet pills, but anyway, now she has a place in the state contest in Redondo We're going to California. ASMR can never. You can't beat that. That is the excitement of a child on Christmas morning. The glee, the yes. joyfulness. Absolute jubilee. <laughs> and the the screenwriter said, this is when you get into the movie. Her excitement about getting into Little Miss Sunshine pageant is what drives the entire story. So if you don't buy it, if you're not excited or intrigued, the rest of this movie is not going to work for you. <laughs> the one thing we can all agree on, this entire family can agree on hands down, is that Olive's dreams are important. Yes. And worth following because she is so genuinely fucking cute. They all hate each other, but they all individually agree that like olive needs to be able to do whatever she wants to do and i buy it i buy the shit out of it i buy it because she's just she doesn't understand like a single bad thing in the world like she's truly just a butterfly in their <laughs> lives and they don't have seed money their books aren't being written you know and they're trying to kill themselves and they're not the number one proof scholar anymore you know all <laughs> no. of this sad shit's happening and she's just like Dancing to Super Freak, dude. Just let her fucking go. She needs to be protected at all costs. Absolutely. So I'm not going to inundate you as to why they all need to go, but I will assure you they all need to go together <laughs> and they all need to go in this fucking van. Trust. <laughs> so as you see them in the van for the first time, there's the needle drop of Chicago by Sufjan Stevens from the album Come On, Feel the Illinois. And what I love about... I was just listening to this commentary like a little dork, but the production team apparently was given a copy of this album because someone, a friend of theirs, was like, you guys are going to love this. They eventually heard it and selected Chicago for this film. And before they started rolling, all of the production team, along with Tony Collette, went to see Sufjan Stevens live. Gay. <laughs> what a gay outing. As I'm looking for the subtext. If Sufjan <laughs> Stevens is involved... It is gay. Um, but they said they picked Chicago, the song, because it captures like a very momentary amount of optimism at the beginning mm -hmm. of this trip before they all realize it's going <laughs> to fuck them up entirely. <laughs> before someone may not be coming back with them east. <laughs> oh, my God. I shouldn't be laughing at this guy dying, but <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, they stop at a diner and we get that scene that you mentioned, Lizzie, where Olive orders her waffles a la Modi. And Richard takes this opportunity to inform Olive, essentially, that bread makes you fat. Yes. After um, Frank gives his Michael Stuhlbarg-esque Latin root lecture about what a la mode actually means, <laughs> this, this scene tickled my fancy. But, like, that's what I'm saying. I, I kept joking throughout the film while we were watching it together, like, oh, Olive's therapist is going to have a great time breaking this these conversations down in therapy in like 15 years but it's it's this subtle antagonistic shit coming from richard talking about like he's asking her like well you watch miss america right olive would you call all those girls skinny or fat because if you eat ice cream you're gonna get fat and therefore you know basically implanting the direct seeds for an eating disorder inside mm -hmm. this young girl and everyone at the table hates him for it yep but there's obviously, like, freedom of speech in this family and no one really, you know, at least for Richard. So I I, I go back to the writer's comment saying, like, oh, he, you know, he's a goofball and could have been a more strong antagonistic force. But I'm like, it's the subtle shit. It's the little things from the people you trust most that will fuck you up the most because you can't just black and white 
your dad in this situation, mm-hmm. you know, looking back in your life if you were Olive. So I think they did a really great job of writing a very realistic antagonistic force. Like he doesn't have to harm her physically or or scream at her or whatever to fuck her up in the future. Yeah, no, it exactly. And, you know, as he's beginning to tell Olive that ice cream could make you fat, you see Dwayne and Frank and the grandpa trying to butt in and he shuts them up. You can't tell someone how to raise your kid. The only person that could really interject is Cheryl. And she does. The mo- Tony Collett's character, Cheryl, says like, hey. And he looks at her and goes, she's going to find out anyways, which is what Cheryl told him about yeah. Frank attempting suicide. So he gets to say whatever he wants now. Mm-hmm. And he tells her that, you know, essentially that, you know, do you want to be like those girls who win Miss America? And the waitress comes and brings the ice cream a la Modi, right? And she drops it. Funny thing about the waitress in the commentary, the screenwriter said, like, as we were filming, I turned to, like, the directors and I was like, shouldn't this waitress be bored with these people? And the directors, Dayton and Ferris, said, not everyone in this film should be unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) Leave someone with an ounce of joy left. <laughs> so she drops the ice cream alamodi and um, Olive pushes it away initially. And then all of the people in the family just start eating it really like animatedly like, oh, I can have this. It's so good. Like, yeah, they're trying to turn the tide for Olive to be excited about it again. What I do with my dog when he doesn't eat like <gasps> mm, the medicine inside I the pre- treat. I pretend to eat the treat. Yum, yum, yum. Works like a fucking charm, does it not? It always. And it works. Olive jumps on that ice cream and she starts to eat it. And... Outside, after lunch, Cheryl attempts to drive the bus and blows the clutch. Can't we really blame Cheryl? Is this her arc? She no. fixes the bus, this is the not, mechanics? This is not her arc. But they take the, the bus to the mechanic, and the mechanic tells them that they're going to have to wait for a week for the part to come in. And then the mechanic tells them, like, you only really need the clutch for first and second. Like, as long as you get the car rolling, you're good. Iconic. And this is straight from the screenwriter's life. He was like, we were like in the middle of nowhere on a Saturday, halfway through our road trip. We couldn't wait for the part. So we just started pushing the VW bus. I have actually done this with my dad and his truck in the parking lots a few times. And I love that. Like the screenwriter went on to say that what he remembers about this road trip was rolling through toll booths and his dad throwing change at the people going, no clutch. (laughs) (laughs) America, name a more American thing. You can't. They'll let that shit slide other places. You cannot do that anywhere else. No, but it's it's perfect because one thing I did notice looking back at like how brilliant of a visual plot device and story device this is is that these moments and there's at least five of them where the family has to like run the car to start. They're never like pissy moments or like no one's getting aggravated at anyone it's like the one time that they seamlessly work together they have a system because you see like as the film goes on every single time they push the car off it's like the same order of people that get in the car like first it's olive then it's cheryl then it's the grandpa you know Mm -hmm. and it's like a mini victory and Mm -hmm. like it's usually coupled with the Sufjan Steven number or some other really like more upbeat score that shows that like they can work together for this common goal. And it kind of like insinuates where the story is going in this subtle way. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to say it because the people who can technically push the car forward aren't Olive. Olive can't really help. So and she's the only one optimistic about this journey. So it forces all these pessimists who just like are waiting for this to be over to kind of 
physically work together, like you're saying, move it forward, and they don't really have a choice. They can't really complain because they don't they don't want to be exactly where they are either. Yeah, they don't want to sit there. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of just they all no words need to be spoken. They're pushing this fucking VW <laughs> bug. Uh, it's yeah. such a satisfying like visual motif as well. Yeah, and so they're on the road again, and Ra- and Richard gets a call from this man who's supposed to be getting him a book deal, Stan Grossman, Brian Cranston. Played by Brian Cranston for like two seconds, not super important. Um, but he loses the signal on the cell call, and so he stops at a gas station and calls Stan Grossman on the phone. And while this is happening, Frank gets down to get a drink and some porn magazines <gasps> for Grandpa. Uh, the line is, "Get a little treat for yourself too, if they got any fag rags in there." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "Yes, sir." <laughs> So I love this shot. It's Frank, and he's just pointing at all the porn magazines behind the counter. He's like, it's I'll like take that, that one. one. Yeah, the one with the big boots. No, the one behind that one. Yeah, and yeah. I'll take buns, you know. Just like- <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, well, oh, God, one was so good. What was it called? The one, the gay magazine is definitely called Buns. There was one with the tits. Was it called, like, Rack? I don't know. It was so good, though. <laughs> As he's doing this, uh, behind him is his ex, the student that he had an affair with, who then left him for his academic rival, Larry Sugarman. The number one Proust scholar now. Yes. And so the screenwriter at this point in the in the movie was like, people always ask me, like, isn't it so convenient that his ex is here? And I always say, yeah, it is. Dude, my best friend, listen to this shit. My other best friend was on a cross-country bike road trip from New Hampshire (gasps) to Washington State, okay, across the fucking country, stopped in the middle of nowhere, Washington State, like zero horse town, got at a gas station, was getting an icy just like this, and who is behind her in line for gas is her ex that, not just like any ex, but like the first ex, like her first person that broke up with her over email and she has not seen or heard from in 10 years. Just happened to be behind her in that gas station. And you know what she did? She walked up to him and said, hey, what's up? It's me, you dumb bitch. Not that, but (laughs) like she scared the shit out of him like a (laughs) ghost coming back from the dead. No, this shit happens. This happens more often than you can think. I can count at least three times in my life where I've been like fucking run ragged (laughs) in the middle of a car wash somewhere. Someone's like, excuse me. And I turn around and it's like, oh, yeah, you. (laughs) The least person I wanted to see right now. The most impactful people that's ever touched my fucking life. Hi, how are you? It happens like that. I'm sorry. The universe is a fickle mistress. So Frank is talking to his ex and he's like hiding his wrists behind his back. And his ex is telling him about like Larry Sugarman and he's a genius. We're going to Sedona. And like we have the convertible and all this stuff. and, And Frank is like, Kind of just nodding along until the cashier is like, hey, 1979, your porn mags. Here's your titty mags. (laughs) So his ex sees that and is like, excuses himself and then like jumps into the convertible with Larry Sugarman. Uh, Larry Sugarman's a wet daddy. Like, ew. Ew. They show him for a split second. He's not cute. Disgusting. Also, those little kids got a pop polo shirt. I'm sorry. Delete. Pop polo shirt in New Mexico. You're telling me <laughs> this little twink in 2006 is wearing this shit. It really was a moment, though. I actually think that's very Shut true. To life. <laughs> Accurate. However, delete. 
so outside on the payphone, if anyone's having a worse day than Frank, it's Richard. If anyone deserves it more than Frank, it's Richard. Yeah, he's got the bad news that his book will not be purchased. The Nine Steps will not be getting a book deal. And after this, the family rolls down a hill and gets back on the highway until Dwayne points out that Olive is missing. Where's Olive? It seems like they've been driving for like quite some time. Like they're super on the highway. They're not like just getting <laughs> off on the exit. They're like on the fucking highway. Yeah, this is like 10 minutes in. So you see them like circle back around to this gas station and they like open the door and slow down. <laughs> they can't stop. They can't stop. Not even for Olive. It's so funny because you see everybody's hands out the side of the door like trying to, come on, Olive. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, sorry. We had to go somewhere real quick. <laughs> Have you ever been left somewhere as a kid? Uh, I don't think I can remember, but probably. Dude, I have like been left somewhere written all over me. You sure do. And on the road, we see Grandpa tell Richard, you tried to do something on your own, which is more than most people ever do. And I include myself in that category. Take guts, and I'm proud of you for taking the chance. And then all of a sudden, just like that, you're feeling things for two characters you thought you hated. Exactly. And the screenwriter had said, like, this is, you want static characters, people like Grandpa who are, like, at the end of their life, to still be able to surprise you. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's, what would be the most surprising thing for this character to do? And be, like, really supportive and kind. Mm-hmm. And so you see them both have, like, a really sweet moment. Which ends up being really poignant because of what is about to happen. Well, before that happens, there's also a very lovely scene. They all make it to a motel, and that night, Olive is in a room with Grandpa, and this scene happens. Am I pretty? Olive, you are the most beautiful girl in the whole world. Yeah, you're just saying that. No, I'm not. I'm madly in love with you. And it's not because of your brains or your personality. It's because you're beautiful, inside and out. Grandpa? What? I don't want to be a loser. You're not a loser. Where'd you get the idea you're a loser? Dad hates losers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up a minute. You know what a loser is? A real loser is somebody that's so afraid of not winning, they don't even try. Now, you're trying, right? Yeah. Well, then you're not a loser. Beautiful moment. Lizzie, do you want to describe that scene? Yes. Olive is getting tucked into bed by Grandpa and is, like, voicing her fears and her true insecurities to him and he very easily is able to you know tell her the truth calm her encourage her and then go off and do some blow in the bathroom it's not blow it's heroin oh god sorry (laughs) oh god much worse bit of a distinction there whoops i didn't know you snorted heroin (laughs) you can you can snort heroin Hmm. absolutely can and you know this Anyway, whatever. I've seen movies. Thank you. Because uh, of this movie. <laughs> well, a first clue would be he snorts the heroin in the first clip and then just leans back and closes his eyes. Like, when you do coke, you... You're not leaning back. You're trying to, like, vibe. Yeah, you're not, like, <laughs> time to close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so in a last-ditch effort to get his book deal, we see Richard visit Stan Grossman. And Stan tells Richard that he did his best, but no one's interested in the nine steps because Richard is a nobody. And I include this beat because the screenwriter um, includes this bit about Angels in America. Wait, what? He said, Tony Kushner says in Angels in America, 
what does it take for a person to change? And the answer is he has to be torn apart and ripped to pieces and then slowly reassemble himself. You're right, though. Yes. You have to hit rock bottom to start heading up. Mm-hmm. So this, this, I mean, I mention it because I know our producer Lee loves Tony Kushner, especially Angels in America, um, which I'm just like, wow, we're getting Angel in America nods. A little, little of sunshine. Go. So good. And I think that's a good point. Like here, Richard is like, he's staring at the sun and the sun is saying, no one's buying your fucking book. Nobody wants the nine steps. It's over. You're a nobody. And it's because of you, you loser. Mm-hmm. And he goes, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is just step one of the program. <laughs> Which is kind of delusional, but also it's it's pretty charming to see. Like, this character does redeem himself very slowly, I might add, but yeah. he does. And the next morning, Olive wakes him up because Grandpa is, is not waking up, I should say, but he's dead. Oof. Honestly, whenever she went to go wake them up, I thought that they had just overslept because he was out late schmoozing Brian Cranston. And I was like, oh, thank God they're not late. He's just dead. <laughs> A better option. <laughs> So they go to the hospital and the doctor does inform them, yes, grandpa is dead. And the bereavement liaison, Linda, is not having an ounce of their shit. <laughs> you cannot abandon the body here, sir. That's exactly what she says. <laughs> so he realizes he's not making any headway with this woman. So he asks to see the remains and they get taken. They get escorted to the little hospital room is an exaggeration. It's like a sheet around a corner of the ICU. And... Grandpa's under the sheet, and they all take a minute to accept that he's gone. And Cheryl says to Olive, we'll do Little Miss Sunshine next year, okay, honey? And you see Richard go, no. No. We've come 700 miles. I'll be damned if I'm not making it to that contest. (laughs) New goal. Olive is the new goal. It's funny because he's like, He's not, I'll be damned if she doesn't make it. Like, yeah. it's in the script. I'll be damned if I don't make it to that contest. He makes Olive's dreams his new personal achievement. Yeah. I think he he got kicked down by Stan Grossman. He's like, I'm going to stand on goddamn business. Yeah. And she's getting to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Amen. Hallelujah. And Cheryl says, honey, we can't leave him. And Richard says, we're not going to leave him. And they, like, he starts opening the window of this hospital room. Wait, wait. Don't, you can't roll over the, like absolute iconic acting that Tony Collette does in this moment where you see on her face in the span of like five seconds like it's a dead body we can't move a dead body it's a crime to she has to forgive her husband mm-hmm. in her mind because she's holding all sorts of grudges on him for using their life savings on this book that is failing forgive her husband and then mm-hmm. move forward to like fuck it Olive means something to me this hospital's procedures don't we're doing this all right <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Her arc, like you see, like she has such a disdain for her husband and it mounts in the first and like it really mounts in that first act. Mm-hmm. And then you see him kind of have that turn where he's like, I don't need to someone to tell me that I'm good. Like I I believe in myself and that's enough. And although he's like totally delusional, mm-hmm. you see the other members of the family when he's like, we're not going to leave him. We're going to move them out of this window that like Dwayne and and Frank are standing in the wings being like, do we go? Do we stay? Yeah. We're not allowed Who's to. Who's the authority? And they keep looking at Cheryl. And then Cheryl looks at Richard and goes, okay, yeah, we're doing this. And, and then the boys run out of the hospital. And that's how you know that this shit is going to work because mm-hmm. Cheryl's on board. Because they are in- unstoppable as a family. Yes. As a family, they all like break up into units like 
Olive is standing guard. Amen. <laughs> and you have Richard and Cheryl wrapping Grandpa on a sheet and moving him out the window. And then you have like Dwayne and Frank catching him on the ground floor. And they fucking make it to the trunk. And the directors said something really great about this scene. Like on paper, it's hilarious. But they said like our job as directors was making it seem like this was the rational decision. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... It's do this or don't get into the pageant. And if like if we've all agreed as a filmmaking audience and as a family of characters that Olive going to the competition is the goal of right now, by fucking God, we're going to make it happen. This is the definition of until the wheels fall off, bitch. Yeah. They are running this van. It's losing doors. People are dying. <laughs> They're running the van <laughs> yes. out of the hospital parking lot, by the way, because it still has to get to third gear before they can... Hit the accelerator. I love this scene because it they put like such funny music over this of like them like accidentally picking up and dropping this dead body and putting in the trunk. And the director said that the motivation for the actors at this point was that there was an active sniper. (laughs) 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 Throwing this body in the trunk. Looking over their shoulders, looking everywhere. And then like running this bus. Fucking gorgeous. Uh, So, so good. So after this, they're in the car and Olive is playing with the colorblind test that she got at the hospital and Dwayne realizes that he can't see the differences in color, that he's colorblind. And Frank says, if you're colorblind, you can't fly jets. Oh, this is probably, I think when people remember this movie, this is probably the scene they remember where Dwayne just starts, he's like freaking out, but he's he's like not verbal yet. He's like, "Mm," and he's like hitting things. Hitting the car, hitting himself. And they pull over and he runs out of the car and just goes, fuck. When you put your whole pussy into a role and you take this, like your character has one motivation. If you take it as seriously as possible and you have directors and editors who will take your performance and do the best with it they can and you trust them, like you do get something like this that is... It was really hard to watch this scene. Like, I felt the agony of someone, like, restructuring their life. Like, hitting bottom, not in, like, a slow decline, but, like, in a a blink of an eye, your whole life hitting the ground. And Mm -hmm. it's so well acted. He really gave his all for a character that, like, could be written as silly, like a 15-year-old. You could not take him seriously. You could say, like, his vow of silence is ridiculous. You know, his hate for his family is indulgent. Mm-hmm. But we're right there with him and feeling everything he's feeling. It, it's really such a good performance. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm surprised that Paul Dano did not get nominated for this role. He did an amazing job. He always does. Did anyone get nominated? We will speak about that oh. later, Elizabeth. Oh. Okay. So he he's like on the ground on the edge of this highway and Cheryl attempts to get him back on the bus because they're like so close to missing this pageant altogether. And she says, you know, but we're your family. And he says, you are not my family. I don't want to be your family. I hate you fucking people. I hate you. Divorce, bankrupt, suicide. Mm-hmm. You're losers. You're fucking losers. Oh. And he just like, begs them to just leave him there. And so they're all stood on this top of this ridge watching him have a complete blowout. They don't know how to comfort him. And then eventually Olive comes down in her little cowgirl boots. (laughs) Her little red cowboy boots. Oh, my God. And she doesn't say a goddamn word to him. She just sits next to him, puts her arm around him, and he looks at her, (laughs) takes one big deep breath. He goes, 
Okay, let's go. <laughs> and then he carries her back up the hill into oh, the car. Shut up. It's too much. It's too cute. <laughs> okay. Tell me go. blocking isn't important, and I'll show you this scene and be like, the scene is four words. It's all body language. It's everything. It's the motion. It's it's how he picks her up. He doesn't pick her up and put her on his hip. Mm-hmm. He picks her up like you would scruff a cat almost mm-hmm. and like carry he's her. Like, like, she's trying to walk up the hill in front of him and she's obviously struggling. He just picks her up like a bag of groceries. Like under her arms and just she like, just like kind of goes limp. <laughs> she goes limp. <laughs> the trust and the affection. <laughs> it's so good. I would watch an anime about these two because when they stand up and walk up the hill, he's like definitely cowboy bebop coated. Yeah. And oh she's just my. like a little thing. She's like Ponyo coated. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're living in two different realities. Yeah. Um, but it's just so incredibly charming. Great scene. And apparently the directors and the screenwriter got a lot of kickback from this saying like, oh, so someone's supposed to go 15 years without knowing they're colorblind. And the screenwriter was like, this happened to my uncle. Like he was in his 40s. He got his pilot's license from, like, a private school, and as they were issuing his license, they did an eye exam. (gasps) They determined he was colorblind, and he was not issued a license. (gasps) He was like, people don't find out they're colorblind till later than most people think. Like, sometimes these tests aren't even administered in school. Also, (laughs) if you're nitpicking this shit... (laughs) <laughs> the film is perfect. I'm so sorry. <laughs> there are a lot of different caveats that really need to happen for the story to continue, like the dad being moved through state lines, mm-hmm. the dead body in the car. Yeah, and, there's a know. morgue service that will just come to you, no <laughs> questions asked, without a death certificate, and pick up any body you have you say it's your dad. <laughs> That's so funny. When he does get the like morgue to come when they do get to the pageant, the dad's like, we were just on a road trip and we thought he was sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> They're like... Uh, sure. He's been a rigor mortis for 24 hours, but okay. I love that. So, okay, yeah. Flashback. We, you know, they're all in the car. They're making it to the pageant. They're moments away from getting cut off of registration. They're flying through sidewalks, crosswalks, barricades. Hilarious. The car is literally not on the road for like... The door of the car is like about to fall off. It flies off. They're they're trying to roll to a stop. They open the, the van, the bus door. It flies off. Frank's character leaps out of the car before it's come to a stop and is like running <laughs> like through a hotel. You know how you say gay people walk fast? He's gay fast walking through this hotel lobby. Amen. And I love this for this character in particular because he was about to kill himself two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's like fully invested. That's what I'm saying. He's Olive. Like, she will be registered <laughs> to this goddamn pageant. God damn it. Two o'clock <laughs> on the dot. <laughs> Uh, so she's registered. They finally got her registered. She is beginning the pageant. The pageant starts. And these kids, these toddler and tiara pageant girlies are some uncanny valley surrealness. Let's talk about genius screenplay. Again, let me just bring up the rich text that we were discussing here. A whole nother sub theme of this film being like just the absolute ridiculousness of the beauty standard on Not only these pageant beauties, but like the general female population of America, the commentary on how this is like an impossible and honestly disturbing Mm -hmm. situation that women at this young age and period are held up to these beauty standards is just like unexpected and fully formed. Like they don't half-ass the ideas No, yeah, I appreciate that like although it wasn't the main focus of the film to critique pageants for young girls 
that the film just said like, we're not sugarcoating it. We're not even spending much time on it. We're just saying if you look at it straight on, it's fucking gross. Yeah, it's <laughs> fucking weird. Yeah. First pageant. Oh yeah. my God, yeah. And so poor fucking Olive, she gets there and she's in like a one piece bikini and she's seeing these kids getting like spray tanned and teeth whitened. They're like five. Yeah, they look like like women. No, and she's freaking out. And Richard's telling Cheryl, you can't let Olive compete. She's going to lose. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be really bad for her Which, to lose. being too afraid to compete is what makes a loser. So he's like, he's, be he's testing his own thesis out. And he had just freshly lost in his, you know, professional life. So, you know, he's very sensitive to that. He doesn't want Olive to lose. And then Dwayne rocks up to Cheryl saying can't let Olive out there. They're going to make fun of her. Mm -hmm. They're going to laugh at her. Mm -hmm. He's like, you can't let her do that. You're her mom. You're supposed to protect her. And Cheryl has a moment where she's fielding all of this. And she goes, Olive has done all of this. She's, she's practiced been practicing every day with grandpa every day. We have to just let Olive be Olive. Also like literally crying at this point. So they let Olive be Olive. She's taken on stage for her talent performance and before she starts, she dedicates the number to her grandpa. And the host says, where's your grandpa right now? And she says, he's in the trunk of our car. <laughs> Hell yeah, sister. Cue that track. Dun, 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 dun. And then Super Freak by Rick James. She gets starts. fucking coyote ugly on these people. <laughs> All right. So immediately when the number starts, the audience is visibly disturbed by the sexual nature of this dance. And I was watching this on, I was watching this clip on YouTube and the top comment was like, it's so interesting that the audience is so disturbed by the act being sexual in nature when the whole pageant is like built upon sexualizing young women. That's the commentary. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. They're like, oh, well, we can't control what she's doing. It's outside of what we've allowed mm -hmm. as a society on these women. Like she is being fun and carefree. And that is not what we're looking for. This isn't for the male gaze, you know? They're like, you can't say you're being sexual. It's all like tongue in cheek. Yeah. But you're supposed to be six-year-old in a two-piece bikini with a spray tan and whitened teeth. Yeah. With like a pompadour and like fucking high heels. You're yeah. six years old. Like, I think that that's a really good note from the person who commented that. I appreciate it. And as Olive is dancing, the audience is leaving. <laughs> So Olive continues to dance and then Richard joins her. And this is Cheryl's arc for me mm. because as soon as Richard starts dancing, they cut to Cheryl. And in a moment, you just see that she's like fallen in love with him again. Yeah. Like she remembers yeah. every, you know, like. That's him. And they never alluded to their relationship before they got married or had kids or anything. You just see the contempt that they have for each other this at this late stage point in their life. And Cheryl up until this point has been such a champion for the children's dreams mm -hmm. and has been almost protecting them from Richard. Yeah. Like she can't trust Richard alone with the children and their dreams. And like up on the stage, she expected one thing to happen. And she was just so beautifully surprised. And then Frank and Dwayne join Olive and soon the entire family's on stage and everybody looks horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Scandalized. I love this scene. And, you know, the family is then taken to pageant prison in the basement of this hotel. <laughs> because that's a thing. Let's go, pageant police. Where do I sign up? <laughs> Recruit my ass. You know, there's like cops on like TNT. There's yeah. like pageant police. Bad boy, bad boy. 
What's she going to do? We were made for that job. Um, And they're released on the condition that Olive will no longer participate in pageants in the state of California. Ever. Again, never. (laughs) They're like, I think we can make that happen. So they all go back to the VW bus and they push it to get it going. They get it going and they run through a lot of barricades on the way out. Let's go. And the film is over. Smiling, crying, so happy. With a budget of $8 million, this film went on to earn $101 million. You're fucking with me. At the box office alone. That's one of the highest margins of profit, for sure, that we've done on the podcast. No, that is insane. I mean, we talked about Pee Wee being $7 million in the 80s. And this was 2006 with $8 million. Yeah. Like literal dust. Yeah. Huge commercial success, huge critical success. Nominated for four Academy Awards for Best Picture, Supporting Actress for Abigail Breslin. It won Best Supporting Actor for Alan Arkin, The Grandfather, and Best Original Screenplay for Michael Arndt. Fuck yeah. And in 2009, it was turned into a stage musical. Let's go. (laughs) Where do I see it? Where do I sign up? How can I be? It's not touring. Shut up. Where can I be? I've heard only good things. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a national theater at home? Do you think that would be? Shut up. Alongside Angels in America. (laughs) And one production tidbit. I did want to tell you guys. I didn't know where to fit it in. But um, this was shot with five identical VW buses, three of which actually had engines, two of which were being pulled on trailers. So the driving scenes were shot entirely without green screen like this is all on the road you can feel it you can see it right Mm -hmm. it looks really true to life and when they were using the vw buses that were able to drive the directors were in the luggage area with the monitors just like scrunched in okay after pageant cop that's my dream job (laughs) (laughs) being a director in the luggage area of of this production yes uh All right. You ready to do the scores? Let's do the scores. How we do the subtextual score around here is a little bit of a trip. We'll each get to rate the film on a scale of 1 to 10 for how gay it is and how good it is. And then we average those together and get a single subtextual score. Okay, Lizzie. How gay is this movie? Let's see. Explicitly gay character, gay relationship, but no gay sex. I'll give it a 6. Because, you know, we love a movie where a character just, like, is gay. And that's part of his character. And it's not like the, the central thing that they want to do. He's not coming out. He's not coming to terms. He's like, I'm gay. This is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a three. Lizzie, how good is this movie? Nine. I'm going to have to Sorry. match that, my friend. So fucking good. This film has an overall subtextual score of 6.75. You know, I'm always looking for like my one stripper song and it might be super freak any movie can change it for me i saw hustlers and i was like criminal yeah oh wait no it's chicago (laughs) 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 you just remain fully dressed the whole number (laughs) putting on clothes (laughs) handing out money to the crowd Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.